You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning, and I'll add my welcome to Todd's welcome and Fritz's and so I'm so glad you're here with us today. My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. And um, if you're visiting with us today, I'm so glad you're here. In fact, that black notebook's a great way to let us know uh, that you're with us this morning. And don't forget to pick up your, your coffee on the way out. Um, if you've got your Bibles, go, go to 1 Peter chapter 4. We are picking up with our study of 1 Peter and kind of relaunching this morning, we're going to look at uh, 1 Peter 4 and 1 Peter 5 over the next couple of weeks. But we'll begin this morning. But just to remind you, Peter, he's one of the apostles of Jesus. He's the apostle we meet in the Gospels as the one who, uh, who kind of acts first and thinks later. He seems to be bold and, and courageous and oftentimes do the wrong thing. And um, he has a, an amazing... Uh, uh, opportunity in his life, one of, the, one of the 12 men that walked with Jesus throughout his ministry, but really it was after the resurrection of Jesus and encounter with him on, a, on the shores uh, there in Galilee that really changed his life. And then the Holy Spirit came and, uh, upon him and, and indwelled him like the Spirit does with all believers. And, and Peter is, is a changed man, we find it. So here he's writing this letter, this letter, and it's about 30 years after all those events. And so we see a man who now has been growing in his understanding of who Jesus is and what that means, not just on a Sunday morning and, and not just uh, when you're hearing somebody preach, and, but, but what it means to, to wake up on a Monday morning and the faith that you have in Jesus be real and, and matter and make a difference and how does your faith in Jesus sustain you through whatever circumstance you might go through, whether, whether it is the routine and the stress and the pressure of just daily life, whether it's in the midst of the highest highs or whether it's through the darkest valleys of suffering, that our faith in Jesus and what He's done, that His sacrifice for us is Going to the cross and bearing our sins is laying in a grave for three days and rising to new life and, and then what he offers us by way of, as Fritz was talking about, to be reconciled to God. And so Peter's working these things out. And the first three chapters were really um, the glories of all that God has done through his son Jesus and then who we are because of that. And this morning, when we get into chapter 4, he's going to instruct us. He's going to say, okay, this is what the Christian life's going to look like. So our question, what does the Christian life look like? What's it supposed to look like? Well, what are we meant to experience in this life as believers? Well, there's a, um, a news article I want to read you. Really, I need to put news article in air quotes. So news article, Okay. It's um, from this website called the Babylon Bee. I had not known about it until the last couple of weeks, and it got sent around our staff, and it's pretty funny. It's a parody. It's satire. It's utter scathing sarcasm at some moments uh, about all things related to the Christian life, all right? 
And, uh, but let me share this latest report with you. It's from Fairfax, Virginia. Here's how it goes. The reporter writes, Accordingly to recently confirmed reports, college junior Paige Winter had a quiet time with God Wednesday morning without Instagramming it. Well, I suspected something was off when I saw her reading her Bible without her phone in sight, her roommate Krista Seppley told reporters. She, she had all the colored highlighters, the journal, the mocha, even a ray of sunlight was piercing through the window, but no phone. Truth is, I couldn't find it, Winter confessed on an afternoon statement released on Instagram. I totally felt something was missing from my QT this morning. It seemed a little empty. I really just felt like I have the spiritual gift of encouragement, especially leading through the Clarendon filter. Winter's closest friends report her grief is tinged with despair. According to small group leader Ashley Vaughn, well, she DM'd me right after she found her phone and asked, how will I find a godly husband if people aren't reminded every day that I'm a woman of the word? Well, I thought it was a good question, to be honest. Winner was asked by reporters how she's coping with the quiet time experienced by nobody but her and her Lord. Uh, there will be a healing process for sure. But the chapter I read this morning in Acts 14, it says that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. And man, that sure hits me in a new way now. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe all this was a God thing. Hold on, I need to Instagram that real quick. <laughs> Let me say this morning, this... This kind of caricature of Christianity, this isn't what Peter's talking about. He's not talking about some outward cultural religiosity that we strive for. He, he's actually, what he's going to do is he's going to go to our hearts. He's, he's going to cause us to examine our minds and our thinkings. It's, it's not an outward display of righteousness. That, that's not what Christianity is, or, or better, outward display of self-righteousness, but an inward reckoning, an inward being permeated with the holiness of Jesus that's covered you. The point of the passage this morning, it might be summed up in a question like this. <clears throat> Have you resolved to be done with sin in your life? Have you resolved to be done with sin in your life? So, so I don't mean to imply by the question that you can or that you will live a sinless life. I mean, the, the Scripture is very clear about that. But what I do mean is, have you resolved? I mean, have you said, have you, have you come to the place of saying, you know what, sin, that's, that's bad. In my relationship with it, it's over. The erosion in my life that I've made peace with, I'm no longer going to be at peace with it. In other words, as you look at the whole of your life, for the most part, would you say, you know, well, hey, I'm not a wicked person. But the reality is that you've allowed a certain amount of sin to reside comfortably enough in your life. And so Peter's going to challenge that for us this morning. He's going to go right at it, actually. Look with me uh, in the first couple of verses of chapter 4. We'll make it through six verses. We'll read a couple and talk about it. 
He says in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same, with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So the first thing Peter's going to do is he's going to appeal to the gospel of the cross. Peter always begins his appeal with the gospel of the cross because for him, there's nothing that can be said about the Christian life or or addressed in, in our living of the Christian life without attention given first to the cross. Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh. It takes us back a few verses to the end of chapter 3 and 3.18 where he said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So Christ, he saying, look, suffered once. He, he suffered once for our sins that he might bring us to God. He was He was put to death in the flesh. He he took on flesh. He he took on humanity that he might also take upon himself our penalty. And what Jesus did on the cross, dying on the cross, he did because of the sin in the world. He, He did it because of the sin in your life. So Peter's going to go on and say, listen, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This, this language of, of arming yourself, it, it's this military language. It, it means put on heavy armor, readying yourself for a serious battle. This is not this backyard scuffle between a couple of you know, elementary school boys. It's a, it's a full-out war is what he's talking about. And those that go to war, that you got to be armed for battle when you go for war. So how, how you arm yourself, he says, is this same way of thinking. So, so what does that mean, this same way of thinking? It means this. It means sin is ultimately defeated one way. Sin is defeated one way, by death. Sin must be put to death. It it must be killed. So sin, it it can't be managed. I mean, it can't be modified or brought under control simply by changing your behavior. Listen, you might have some temporary success with that. You, You might have some temporary success changing your behavior. But ultimately, listen, sin has to be put to death. Sin management, it's like, like the game you used to play when you were a kid at Chuck E. Cheese. You remember this? You put the quarters in or, or, or whatever it was, and you had a mallet or, or a bat, and a uh, little plastic animal head would pop out of the holes, and, and, and you, you'd try to hit them before they shrink back into the holes. And so even if you hit one, though, another one pops up. See, killing sin is more than changing behavior. It has to do with your heart. So so Peter, he's speaking of more than a strategy to stop sinning or to manage your sin. He's talking about hating sin, full-on 
hatred of sin, going to battle with an enemy that needs to die. There's no place for making peace with sin in your life. There's no place for simply managing it so that it doesn't just get out of control. Letting it stick around so that you can access it when you need a little escape. Or access it when you're looking for a fix. Or access it when you need to take control of a situation. Makes me think of... um, King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. God had told Saul, he's the first king of Israel, had come to him through the prophet of Samuel and and told him to go and defeat the Amalekites. They were the enemy of Israel. They had done terrible things. These were a people who were grossly idolatrous. And God was going to judge them through the nation of Israel. He tells Saul, listen, I want you to go. I want you to defeat the Amalekites. I want you to devote everything to destruction. I want you to wipe it all out. Don't let anything remain. All of it. Destroy it. And so he does. Kind of. Except here's the thing. He allowed his men to keep the best of the livestock, the, the, the sheep and the oxen. He... Saul also, he kept the king alive, a king named Agag. So Saul, what he'd done is, he'd done enough to manage the Amalekites, or so he thought. I mean, he struck them down. He struck them down enough that they were no longer a real threat. But he decided that keeping some of the good things around, there wasn't any harm in that. And you never know. Listen, you never know when you might need a king around. Right? I mean, he kept him around for political advantage. You should never know when you might need to leverage a, a king. Well, the truth is, 1 Samuel 15 tells us that really is the end of Saul. He disobeyed God. And the tragic thing about it is, so when Samuel, the old prophet, the the old man Samuel comes, he confronts him about it, Saul says, what? I did obey God. I did what he said. To which, you know, Samuel says the line many of you know, what's the sheep I hear bleeding in my ear. Uh, Saul's going to say two things that are interesting. First, he's going to declare to Samuel, look, it's not, it's not my fault. The men did it. He doesn't take responsibility for it. And somebody else says, I, I didn't do this. When that doesn't work, he goes to another excuse and he says, hey, look, look, he... Samuel. Don't get so bent out of shape. We only kept them so that we could sacrifice them to God. So he rationalizes it. I mean, he was trying to take something that's wrong and spin it in a way that it sounded right. So Samuel, the old man Samuel, he has Agag brought before him. And Agag, man, he's in good spirit. He's a king just survived a total destruction. He says, listen, there's no need for hostility here. It's all good. I'm, I'm no harm to anybody. And then Samuel, with Agag standing in front of him, I love this about Samuel. I, I have to think Samuel, Samuel might have, might have practiced this. You know, this is one shot in front of King Agag, and he's got one line. Here's what he says: 
He says, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. Hashtag, you're going to die, right? <laughs> so Samuel takes a sword and hacked him into pieces. Into pieces. See, I, I think that illustrates what Peter's getting at. Listen, sin must be thoroughly destroyed. It, it can't, we can't live at peace with it. There's no place for it. We've we got to take responsibility for it. We, we, gotta, we, we can't rationalize it. We, we arm ourselves with the thinking of Jesus that the only future for the sin in my life is that it must be killed. So let me ask you a question again. Have you resolved that? Have you come to terms with the reality that you can't be at peace with sin? Well, <clears throat> the last part of verse 1 and into verse 3, I want to look at that. He goes on to say at the end of verse 1, he says, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So two things about one is kind of a hard it's a hard phrase to translate from the Greek the, the way that Peter writes it. The other thing honestly, it's hard to understand exactly what he means there. And so in verses 2 and 3, I want to look at that and and I think that helps us understand what he means in the last half of verse 1 about those who have suffered to cease from sin. So, so he goes on, he says this, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So in verse 3 there, Peter, he has this cultural context in mind. There were some norms of the society in which the believers lived. And so Craig Keener, he has this commentary called the background commentary. He, he describes it this way, the, the scene that Peter's speaking about. He says, there were dinners at homes of patrons and probably those of social clubs. They, they lasted far into the night with heavy drinking and men often then pursuing slave women or young boys. Religious festivals were similar occasions for immorality. Social clubs household cults, and virtually all aspects of the Greco-Roman life were permeated with the veneration of false gods and spirits, although this behavior was not immoral from the general Greco-Roman perspective. The, the believers that he's writing to, this was their this was the norm of the day. This is how their society lived. And they knew. I mean, Peter's writing to a group of believers that know that while this is acceptable in their context, in their society, it is not congruent with their life as a believer. In fact, essentially what he says is, hey, look, you've already done all that. You, you've had your fill of living like those around you. That... You, you, you've lived with your life directed by human passion. The rest of your life now as a believer is ahead of you, and it is to be lived for the will of God. 
So as readers today, it'd be easy for us to, to write this off. I mean, you might be sitting here and saying, well, man, that's great news. I, I, mean, I haven't been to an orgy lately or ever. And I haven't offered any gifts to an idol or a false god or an evil spirit. I mean, so, so I'm good. I mean, it's great. But I think that would miss the point of the application here. So let's get underneath what's going on for a second. Let's say it this way. You spend Monday through Friday working hard and getting up and doing your job and paying your bills and being respectable. And then when Friday night rolls around, man, you just need to cut loose a little bit. I mean, you've earned it, right? And it's not like you're doing it every night. I mean, just Friday night. I mean, you look for a little escape from the from the pressures of the real world, the stresses of your responsibility. So, listen, you're not doing anything necessarily that's offensive in the culture. Anything different than what's normal in our society? I mean, look, single people hook up. That's what they do. Married people flirt. That's what they do. Moms have girls' night out and escape a little from the difficulty of their marriage. And then the guys, they, they have some man time and, and do what guys long to do, and that's revert back to their college days. Maybe it's more subtle than that. Listen, I'm not saying don't hang out with your girlfriends. I'm not saying don't hang out with the guys. I'm, I'm asking, what's in your heart when you do? What's in the heart of those that you're with. See, are, are there places that you escape? I mean, do you have, a, you have a little sin retreat from your Christian life, and then you rationalize it. You, you've spun it in your heart and in your mind in a way that you call it a good thing. So when life's difficult, when the, when the stress squeezes you, when the pressures of life are overwhelming, where do you go? What do you do? This is what Peter's saying. It's the reason we need to arm ourselves. It's easier to escape. It's easier to check out. It's easier to default to indulging our hearts with a sinful behavior in hopes, listen, to forget everything for a little while. It's easier to do that than to, than to take it to Jesus. See, the temptation we have is to medicate ourselves with a little managed sin than to take our lives to the foot of the cross. So when Peter says, listen, for whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, he, he's saying, look, when, when you've resolved that, that sin, even managed sin, sin you think you can control, that, that you have a handle on and only use it when you need it, when you've resolved by arming yourself with the thinking that says sin has to be killed, Jesus took it on himself. He died for it. He did the only thing that can be done with sin. He killed it. So when you arm yourself with that thinking, Peter says, look, there's suffering involved. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, he's not saying, look, all suffering purifies. Is not saying you, you suffer, you'll be sanctified necessarily? That the more you suffer, the holier you are? I don't think that's what Peter's getting at. I mean, we know listen, suffering can lead to bitterness. Some of you know that. 
Peter's getting at our hearts here. So what's in your heart? I mean, have you resolved sin must die? It must be killed. Or are there things you keep around because you might need it someday? Well, what's the suffering we need to, to, to arm ourselves for? The, the suffering is not, not just being beaten or, be, or being martyred. It, that's definitely suffering, and some of the believers that Peter's writing to experience that. Listen, suffering can be any form of affliction experienced with following Christ. For example, hypothetical. I don't really know about these. But I read about them, I'll offer them to you. Your children talk back to you and are completely disobedient. I've heard that some children do that. I mean, your normal reaction could be to fire back in anger. Because, I mean, let's be honest. It feels good to get a little of that frustration out, right? I mean, just to let them know. I mean, just to let them know. I mean, right? But if you fight against the rage and you, and you deal with that discipline in an appropriate way that honors God, you're putting selfish anger to death in the moment. Say somebody's spreading some gossip about you. Nat natural reactions hurt them back. I'm not letting them get away with that. But you fight that desire to get even. You, you put your pride to death. And tempted to Engage in lustful thoughts about somebody. Your natural reaction, let your eyes linger, let your mind go there a while. If you fight against that, you're putting lust to death. You realize, I, I can't entertain, no, no, I can't make peace with that. So Peter's saying, listen, when you suffer in the flesh, the battle that you experience every day, when you, when you die to the flesh, when you're put the indwelling sin to death, when you kill sin, you cease sinning in that moment. I mean, listen, Peter doesn't mean that you actually stop sinning permanently or forever. I mean, we're sinners. We're tempted and prone to sin all the time. What it means, though, when you're tempted, you fight that sin with the Word of God and the Spirit of God in the moment. You've ceased. You've stopped sinning. You, you killed sin in that moment. You've stood against the power of sin in your life. So I'm not making peace with it. It may be a short-lived moment. But you've resolved sin doesn't have power over you. you say no to it. Say yes to Jesus. He's talking about your heart's resolve to sin. No, nothing less than death separates us from a life of sin. So arming yourself with this way of thinking. Same thing Paul says. He, he says this in Romans chapter 6, beginning verse 8. He says, Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you must consider, you must reckon yourself dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let no sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. Make you obey its passions. So here's what Peter's saying. It, what's instructive for us this morning in relation to the sin we struggle with in our life as believers. 
whether it's sin that you keep around, you know, like a, like a pet lion that you think you can tame, or a sin that you know is devouring you. And maybe if you were honest this morning, you said, man, I know it's devouring me. And I'm, I'm desperate for victory over it. So what do you, what do, you do with it? How, how do you fight against it? Well, the conventional way is that you would hear somebody say, well, listen, some version of this, you've got to try harder. I mean, you know it's wrong, so don't do it. You, you, you make up some laws for yourself. You condemn yourself and your sin. You, you seek to follow this new law, and you say, I won't ever do that again, ever, ever, ever. And again, you make a vow to yourself, and then you say, instead... So instead, I'm going to do this, and I'll, I'll do the, all this righteous and holy stuff, and, and I'm going to show God how good I am, and I'm going to be the best Christian that he's ever seen. Just watch. God, I'll show you I can do better. But like I said a few minutes ago, it might work for a while, but in the end, it's a Chuck E. Cheese game at best. See, the strategy of both Paul and Peter for believers, it's, it's always presented this way. It says this. Here's the first step. Jesus has done everything. He's done everything. You don't add anything to it. He's done everything. It begins with the focus on what Jesus has done. That's the starting place. And then secondly, there's a reckoning. It's just where you're trusting that Jesus has done it all. That you trust he's conquered sin. You trust he's forgiven your sin. You've been made clean by his righteousness. You are loved by him. He's taken your filthy garment of sin and he put it on himself and put you clothed in pure vestments. That's where you start. Then and only then are we armed to fight against the sin in us, the temptation that rises in the moments. We're not depending on ourselves. We're depending on what Jesus has done and the power of the Spirit in us. One writer said, he said, it's as we remember what Jesus has done that we'll be empowered to do what we're called to do. Unfortunately, many Christians start with, well, what must I do? And then they fail at the Christian life because where they should have started is to say what Jesus has already done. You get the power to conquer sins, to kill sin, to mortify sin, to go on a sin-killing spree when you focus on, on Jesus' conquest of sin. You, you arm yourself with the knowledge of what he's done for you. If you want sin to lose its power over you, you realize how much he loved you. You don't think about how much he's out to get you. Instead, what he said is, I won't get you because I, I died for you. There's no more powerful incentive for righteousness than that. John Owen, theologian from a couple of centuries ago, great Puritan. He said it this way, if you take your sin to Mount Sinai, which is another way to say, well, I have to do something about my sin. I'm, I mean, I'm doing something wrong, I'm at, and that's bad. And, and so if you take your 
sin. If, if you go to Mount Sinai it, you, you, and you say, listen, listen, we better stop. God's going to punish me and, 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 and people are going to find out and, and, and you'll, be, you'll be rejected and, and it's going to cause all kinds of problems. And he says, if you take your sin to Mount Sinai, you can expect the sinful desire to get more powerful because that's how the perversity in us works. Paul said it this way, I find it to be a law that when I most want to do good, evil lies closest at hand. He goes on to say, listen, if you try to deal with the power of sin by simply beating yourself up or saying, listen, God's going to beat you up and you're going to find it actually makes the sin stronger. If you want to be done with it, you want your sin in the moment to lose its power over you. You don't take your sin to Mount Sinai, but you take your sin to the cross. And realize its, its power has been defeated there. Not in anything you can do. So he's going to go on in verse 4, 4 and 5 real quickly. With respect to this, they're, they're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they'll give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. He says, Look, don't be surprised that the resolve of sin in your life, that, that, that it must die, that you've resolved that, that it's not met with enthusiasm by those in your life. They're surprised. <laughs> uh, wait a minute. What? I don't understand. I mean, it's not that big a deal. Surprise. He also says they'll malign you. That's the word for blasphemy. It's when your friends become your persecutors. I mean, you know, it's your old friends. Maybe it's your family. They're the quickest to point out how ridiculous the grace of God really is because, you see, they know you. I mean, they've been with you. They've seen you in ways and at times that you've longed to forget, but they, but they don't. And they're quick to bring up how ridiculous it is that you think that somehow, some way, you've been made different. R.C. Sproul in his book, Holiness of God, tells this story about Billy Graham playing golf with President Gerald Ford, and then there are two professionals, uh, PGA pros that are playing with him. He writes it this way, after the round of golf was finished, one of the other pros came up to the golfer and asked, hey, what was it like to play with the president and with Billy Graham? And the pro unleashed a torrent of cursing and in a disgusted manner said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. So with that, he turned on his heel, stormed off, headed to the practice tee. His friend followed. His friend said nothing, sat on the bench and watched. After a few minutes, the anger of the pro was spent. He settled down. His friend said to him quietly, was Billy a little rough on you out there? And the pro heaved an embarrassed sigh and said, no, he didn't even mention religion. I just had a bad round. And then Sproul makes this comment. He says, astonishingly, Billy Graham so identified with the religion, so associated with the things of God, that his very presence is enough to smother the wicked man who flees when no man pursues 
Luther was right. The pagan does tremble at the rustling of a leaf. He feels the hound of heaven breathing on his neck. He feels crowded by holiness, even if it is only made present by an imperfect, partially sanctified human vessel. It's one thing to be persecuted for righteousness. It is quite a different thing to be persecuted for self-righteousness' sake, though it's not what he's talking about. We still, we still love our old friends. We do. And verse 5 says that they'll have to give an account. They'll, they'll give a word back, it literally means, to God. They speak badly of us now, but the day when truth's revealed, they'll have to confess, you know what, that that really was good. And then he says the gospel is preached in verse 6, even to those who are dead, meaning that it was preached to them while they were alive. They've died now. They believed. And though they've been judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. They, they physically die. They're judged in, in, in regard to the body. But the Christian's physical death doesn't lead to judgment and eternal life. It, it leads to life in the Spirit. Now, life in the Spirit is, is now. And then. And the then after the then. The life in the Spirit is to be tasted now. And then when you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. And then, and then you're waiting a new physical body, a glorified body in resurrection. And then with the Lord for eternity in a glorified body, face to face with the King Jesus forever. The experience of the Christian life now is to be lived not at peace with sin, but in an all-out, full-on war, armed with the thinking of Jesus. Sin must be killed. And the only way it's killed is to take it to the cross and to reckon that Jesus has done that. Only then are you empowered by the Spirit of God to walk in the will of God and not after the human passions that we all know all too well. So if you would, would you bow with me and let's, let's pray. I want to say, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in, in Christ and you hear all this, I, I, I know that much of this doesn't make sense, but I, I'm praying for you even now that what you would hear is the work that Jesus did, who, the eternal Son of God, Jesus, who came into this world as a man, fully God, 
and fully man. And, and lived a, a life that was, that was perfect. It did not stumble in even a step. Was tempted, but did not sin. And came armed for the battle against sin. But not with a sword. With the willingness to offer up his life. To be beaten. Mocked. Nailed to a cross. And die. And to lay dead for three days. And then to be resurrected. To new life. To rise from the dead. As the witness that he has conquered sin and conquered death. And so this morning I pray that God would grant you the faith. To be drawn to this Jesus. The only hope we have. And to know, to come to terms, to resolve with, listen, hope's not in me. I, I can't do anything to save myself. And to see that all that was to be done has been done by another for your sake. And in that, you realize Jesus has taken all of your sin. And in that moment, you are clothed in his righteousness and stand holy and pure before God. And Father, for all of us, that that would be the place we'd start. That would be the place we'd go to in the moment that we find temptation rise up and the battle is full on with the sin in our life. Not that we'd make peace, but Father, we'd go to war with the remembrance of what Jesus has done on the cross and the victory of his resurrection. Father, you can do that. You're the only one that can do that in our hearts and minds through the power of your Spirit. And so we pray all these things the only way we can. And that is in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.